the puzzle mystery, for example, once the mainstay of the genre, had not worn well, and amateur detectives with amusing personal habits and substantial private incomes were now an endangered species. Most of the books I read could be rejected with a clear conscience. Then I came to the novels of Cheval and Volu. I was struck at once by their enduring quality, and in particular by the combination of relevance and timelessness that is the mark of good fiction. I realized at once that these were more than crime novels. Their authors were, quite consciously, using the police procedural to describe and analyze what was, for them, contemporary society. Furthermore, their conclusions could be applied to other cities and other times. I still have copies of the enthusiastic reports I wrote. Here was part of my assessment of The Man on the Balcony, the sheer nastiness of it all, of police work in particular and city life in general, comes over very clearly. The themes are obvious, though never overstated, that we are all responsible for crime, since it is a product of the society we have created, and that the police have an ambivalent attitude towards the society they exist to protect. Elsewhere I wrote, On the surface, the book is a sort of minimalist police procedural. It is also an excellent novel. The characters are wholly credible, both personally and professionally. The drab Swedish setting is unobtrusively vivid, if that isn't a contradiction in terms. The authors slyly upset our preconceptions about police, crime, and criminals, and, by extension, about the nature of the society that engenders them. Nowadays we take for granted the availability in English translation of so much excellent Scandinavian crime fiction, from Henning Mankell to Arnoldur Indrithesen to Gunnar Stolleson. Modern readers have come to relish the sociological perspectives it offers, but even the best examples of it make Cheval and Valu's achievement seem still more impressive. When I first read The Man on the Balcony, I had no idea that the series had been planned as a whole, or that the authors had chosen to use the crime novel because, as a literary form, it offered them a unique mechanism for exploring the relationship between the individual and society. By definition, crime novels deal with law-breaking. Laws are the product of their political, economic, and cultural contexts, and those who break laws, and uphold them, are constantly both investigating their nature and testing their validity. Cheval and Volu, who worked together on the books and wrote alternate chapters, were communists, and clearly their critique of Swedish society is from a Marxist viewpoint. Fortunately for us, they were also gifted writers, and their novels transcend narrow political philosophy. Taken as a whole, the series is notable for its variety of tone, plot, and motivation. It also has moments of surreal comedy. In terms of fictional chronology, The Man on the Balcony is the third title in the series. As a police procedural, its debt to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct novels is obvious. The book's narrative is filtered almost entirely through the team of investigating officers. Martin Beck, now a superintendent, is in operational charge of the case. There are many familiar faces. Inspector Gunvald Larson, a man whose hearty conviction of his own worth constantly grates on his colleagues. The pipe-smoking Maylander, with his photographic memory and his need to spend time in the lavatory. Kalbia, the portly former paratrooper, who hates violence and refuses to carry a gun, and who in this novel is on the verge of becoming a father for the first time. The delicate Einar Rohn, who's nursing a cold, and Christensen and Kavant, the boneheaded patrolmen who pop in and out of the series with the grisly inevitability of a pair of Shakespearean gravediggers. These are flawed and inconsistent human beings, and much of the authority of both this book and of the series as a whole derives from the fact that the recurring characters are so entirely credible. It is June, 1967. Cheval and Valu are always precise about time and place, true to their journalistic training, 
just as they are about police procedure. It's shaping up to be a quiet summer in Stockholm, apart from a mugger who, with insolent efficiency, is robbing defenseless citizens in the city's parks and defying police attempts to catch him. Then Martin Beck's tranquility is ruined when a couple of drunks stumble on the corpse of a nine-year-old girl in one of the parks. She has been sexually assaulted and strangled. Two days later, the killer strikes again with the same somnambulist certainty. The only people who might be witnesses are the mugger, whom no one can catch, and a three-year-old boy, whom no one can understand. The teeming anonymity of the city hampers the investigation at every turn. The detectives make forays into a grim and degraded underworld of criminals and losers, a place where, in a sense, everyone is a victim. The police have ambivalent feelings towards the citizens they are paid to protect. Sometimes, one senses, they prefer uncomplicated criminals to so-called law-abiding citizens. Respectable family men, for example.